This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today, Greg Hurwitz. He is the author of the Orphan X series. His latest is out in February, and it is amazing, called Dark Horse. He's also the author, 23 novels in total, two young adult titles, multiple comic books to include writing Wolverine, Punisher, Batman Dark Knight, a host of others, and has had a ton of success in Hollywood as a screenwriter. So incredible human being, such a nice guy, and had a great conversation with him. So you can find out more, greghorowitz.net. Check out everything he has going on right there and enjoy this conversation. Now, without further ado, Greg Hurwitz. Uh, we just did an audio book conversation to go with Dark Horse, which is the latest Orphan X novel. And uh, we're probably going to cover a couple things that may have some overlap. But uh, before we get to this novel, how did you get to this novel? This is the seventh Orphan X, I believe, and but it's your 23rd novel. And I went back to look when your first one was, it was 1990, was it 1999? Uh, you've been doing this for over 20 years now, over two decades. So wow. how did you, uh, what was your journey up to, and then deciding to write that, uh, that first novel and get it published? Well, it's really funny, you know, so I went to college, we talked a bit about how I only wanted to be a writer. Um, and, you know, when I went to college, I studied English and psychology not just because I thought that's the best combination of, of majors to be a writer, but because those were the two things I love the most. But like, it, you know, it's funny. There's this fantastic speech that Steve Jobs gave. I think it was at the Stanford, uh, a Stanford graduation where he talks about how the pattern of your life makes sense. If you follow things you love, they don't make any sense as you're doing them. But if you look back, you can discern a pattern, right? It's so great. Everybody should listen, listen to that one. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. And so in a lot of ways, I look back and it's like, oh, okay, I studied, right, English and psych- English, American, Latin psychology, right? I started my first book when I was an undergrad, but I was focused a lot on Shakespearean tragedy, right, which basically are thrillers, right? They're tales of lust, in, you know, convention-bound, narrative-driven tales of lust, intrigue, and murder designed to appeal to the broadest cross-section of Elizabethan society as possible, Right. And, and, then and I people that are listening to this will realize that, uh, yeah, you didn't just read one uh, Shakespearean play. Like you were a student of Shakespeare and you have written uh, academic articles about uh, about Shakespeare and his craft and his uh, and his plays. So, um, yeah, you you <laughs> that's uh, and did you study that as part of your major? Was that like a class? In undergrad, certain- yeah. And then I, I did go to England and get a master's in Shakespearean tragedy uh, because I needed like a really practical degree to enter the job force. So sure. I thought that was it. You know, they were like kicking down my door. <laughs> but I, it was kind of a stall to finish up my first novel, to be honest, when I was in England, because um, I was editing it. I, I basically, I graduated, I finished undergrad with a very shitty first draft of this novel that was about half the length that it was. And then I took the whole thing apart like an engine block. Mm. But the psychology too, you know, you mentioned Joseph Campbell. And of course, a lot of Joseph Campbell is distilled Carl Jung, right? So I did Jungian analysis of Shakespeare 
all Jung writes about is stories and narrative and mythology, right? Whether that's in dreams or alchemy, it's all about what that journey is, right? Even alchemy is the journey from base material into gold, right? That's the hero's journey too. And so he was fascinated by that. And then if you read like with Freud, people forget, you know, Freud won the Nobel Prize in literature. Like it was a big insult for him, you know, and his, his case studies read like short stories. They're amazing, right? They're all about the internal narrative of people's psychology in their lives. And so everything I was kind of chewing on um, and obsessed with, and incidentally, that's where I met uh, Jordan Peterson. He was my thesis advisor as an undergrad. We did no kidding. that Jungian work together. And that was the beginning of our, of our um, friendship as he was my thesis advisor. And I took like young personality psych, like that was sort of a big part of it is like figuring out how to make meaning for me through storytelling. Um, and so I was always kind of geared towards that. And so I basically finished this really shitty first draft of a book that I think, you know, must've had some promise, but like, I, I can't look at that rough draft now. It's so embarrassing. And then I went off, I didn't know what to do. I have no job skills. <laughs> Unlike you, you know, where, where you can, there's a lot of things that you can do in the practical world, uh, Jack, that, that, and I don't have a lot. It was either this or I'm like selling pencils on the street corner. So I, I got a master's, I went to England and I rewrote the book and then I just got incredibly fortunate. I did a whole summer unpaid internship with a Hollywood producer who had actually produced Night Shyamalan's movie, the one prior to The Sixth Sense. It's called Wide Awake. Oh, and I worked that, that whole summer for one read. Uh, his assistant who became his director of development, I mailed it to her from England and she mailed it to who was then Knight's lawyer and he flew me to New York and basically signed me. And then we went out, I got a bunch of notes. I rewrote it. It was, you know, I, I don't know in hindsight, I don't know how he saw that rough draft and thought enough of it. Right. But there was, there was something in it and, you know, people are, some people are, are good at spotting potential in different ways, but I did a lot of work and I got it ready. And then I was incredibly lucky. I, I Simon Schuster preempted it and I kind of, you know, was off and running. Um, and the first thing I did was, I took all that money and put it all straight in the bank. I lived in a studio that was so small. It was like my bed and I could reach out and touch my desk and like, you know, standing up with arm span, I could touch it each wall. And all I thought of money as was like gas in the engine for how I only thought of it for gas in the engine for my career. Meaning like mm -hmm. if I still live on $2,000 a month, how many months will that get me to write? It's all I cared about. Um, you know, if I had, if somebody, when I graduated college had said, look, we can, someone will pay you like minimum wage for the rest of your life, but you can just write. I would have probably signed that deal. Um, though my agent's very pleased that I did not, but like I it's, it was so important to me to do that properly. And that was good. It took me two and a half years to sell my second book, um, which was called minutes to burn that features, you know, a bunch of seals. And uh, there's a, I got a blurb from, from uh, Dick Marcinko for that one. Cause I knew, I knew his breacher. That's where I'd overlap with a lot, nice. of, a lot of guys from the teams and stuff. I have a great manuscript of that where they're being deployed on a plane. A bunch of guys, you know, who, well, you know, I won't name, but will people who, you know, I'm sure where it would be like a sniper scene, hand to the sniper. I got his notes about everything I nice. screwed up. Then there's yep. like a breaching scene. It went to the breacher. Yep. My buddy was down here. <laughs> Just last night, we were joking about that. I have this manuscript that's basically copy edited by, you know, like a fire squad. It's really funny. Um, 
but so everything for me was like, if I got a sale, I'm like, that's another year and a half that I can write if I, you know, don't spend money, you know, and, and it was all, it was just all about that. And so I, you know, when I sold it, I'll tell you one thing that was hard for me is like, I'm an extrovert. Like you're, you're, you seem like an extrovert too, a little bit. I've learned to become an extrovert over time just because mm-hmm. it was necessary, but I'm much more of a, of an introvert. Um, that's much more, I'm much more comfortable just being huh. by myself alone in the woods with, huh. uh, with a notebook, with my words. Um, but over time, particularly, uh, when I stepped into the SEAL teams, I realized that it was something that I needed to, to develop, uh, to be more. It's funny. I'm, I'm in some ways the opposite. And so the part of writing that was hard for me was when it's like, okay, you got your wish, right? I was a kid. I sold this first book. I was 22, 23. And it was like, wait, so now I'm, I just am alone with the computer all day, every day, (laughs) you know, and it's all I wanted to do. But up till then I wrote like, you know, when I was inspired with everything else. And when I got that shot, I really thought I'm not, I don't want to take this for granted or mess it up. Like I'm writing every day from nine to five, like period. I'll take a half hour for lunch and I just was on a schedule and I've pretty much have stuck to that, you know, it gets, you know, crazier and wider. And if something's in production and I'm late, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's a very important part of it for me is to maintain that discipline, you know, as sort of a show of respect for the fact that I get to do this. Like I don't take that lightly a day in my life, but that was the process, you know, and it involved a lot of, um, a lot of luck and a lot of help from other people like this lawyer, you know, like the, the, you know, my, this producer's assistant, who was the director of development, like a lot of people were there to open the doors that I was, you know, my discipline was keeping me ready for any door that would open, but people opened them. And that's a big, it's been an important thing for me to, to, I have still the note that, that, that then assistant who mailed it to the lawyer, who is, who is, I was very close with, he passed away a few years ago. Uh, his name was Mark Gleck. He was wonderful. And, um, but I have the buck slip she wrote introducing um, me to him to say, you know, I know you've done well with Mr. Shyamalan and this is a writer I want. And he's, it's got like scribble on it. And I have it framed as a reminder of like, everyone needs help. And like you, when people, you know, to, to give it, to be the person mm-hmm. who also opens those doors for other people who are, who are coming in from different angles. So yeah, um, it was, it was cool. And it was, you know, I, I made sure that at least I would bring the discipline part, you know, as hard as I could, as long as I could. Oh yeah. I mean, you have to be ready to kick that door in when someone opens right. it for you or yeah. when someone Knock extends that hand, you have to be ready. Uh, yeah. you can't be like, Oh, now I'm going to scramble. Someone's giving me a shot. Oh, I got to do all the things that I should have been doing for the last X number of years. It doesn't work like that. You have well, that's to you writing your second book after your time to kill, you know, like you're on a plane, you're figuring it out. And so when, when it goes, you're starting to have a body of work. You're starting to be someone who would be trusted by a publisher to invest in, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting seeing people today because now everyone can comment um, back in like 1985, you wouldn't really know. Uh, you read a review, maybe one here, one there. Uh, maybe someone would tell you something at a book signing, but that was about it. You didn't have a way for people to comment on your work daily, uh, what they like and what they don't, uh, which uh, as, as you can uh, you can do today. Um, so some people will listen to, to this or they've listened to me talk about uh, my journey in the past and you get somebody who says, uh, oh, you're so lucky, so lucky that that, uh, that that person gave it to that lawyer, so lucky that that lawyer read it. Well, yeah, don't call you lucky if you 
if other people are sleeping while you're out there working, while you're studying Shakespeare, while you're editing that first novel, while you're making it as hard as, as good as you can possibly get it, while you're crushing it for that person all summer as an intern just to get that one read, and maybe they're just going to get to that first paragraph or that first page, but if you put in that work and it's good as you can possibly be, maybe they'll turn that page and keep going and keep going. So you're putting in that work through that discipline so that when that hand's extended or when that door is cracked, you're there to kick that thing in. And, uh, and that's what that's what you did. I mean, that, that's an amazing story. And when it got to Simon and Schuster, uh, did they say you had to get an agent? At what point during this process did you get an agent? I had an agent um, initially. This lawyer paired me up with somebody who okay. was uh, brilliant. Um, like, basically, I don't even know why he worked with me. He had, he's a good friend. He remains a very good friend and actually wrote him as a character in The Crime Writer as, nice. the, as the, the kind of crazy, uh, super intense editor. And my then editor said, no editor would ever talk this disrespectfully to a writer. Like, it doesn't even make sense. I'm like, I toned it down like 50-fold. <laughs> brilliant, um, brilliant guy who basically sent this memo of everything that was wrong with the book. And I was like, you know, young and dumb and younger and dumber maybe. Um, and and basically like top to bottom and wall to wall, like dialogue, this structure. And it was it was really a process of this editor, you know, and I did a ton of work. And by the time I was done, he left the agency. Um, and so I went, got another agent. The other agent submitted to Simon Schuster, and that's how the sale happened. But I, I remained friends with that first agent because he was so direct. And it also really taught me um, the importance of showing respect for people when you give input by being honest. Now, he's brutal, but I can respond to that okay. I don't, <laughs> right? It's like, I don't mind you know, rough, I had a lot of like really rough coaches, you know, tough coaches and stuff and coming up and like, I can respond to that. Okay. And obviously there's, there's, you have to match people's personalities. But one thing it really taught me was like to show respect for people, you tell them what you think and you tell them what you think, honestly. And of course there's ways that, to do that. That is respectful and mindful of people, with different personalities who take in information differently. But, um, it was helpful. It was hard, man. It was hard. There was a lot he thought didn't work. And he was a lot more experienced than me. He'd been an agent for a lot of years. I think he had just shy of a PhD in English from Columbia. Like it was, there wasn't talking around it. Some of the points, right? The solutions had to be mine. I had to figure it out, but there was, it was a lot to take in. And so I still, I'm, I'm grateful as much as that was a brutal process at times because I needed some of that, you know, I was, I mean, I was, what do you know? You're 22, 23. Like I, you don't even have full myelination of your prefrontal yeah. cortex. Yeah. <laughs> right. you know? Still developing. Yeah. I was like, this is, I wrote a, this is a good book, you know? So it was great. And so I've tried to, um, I try to kind of reflect that by being honest when people come to me for help or advice, it's like the job isn't to be a cheerleader till it's time to be a cheerleader. And then you jump up and down and make sure everybody hears about something that's great. But what you, what you really want to do is, is show someone the respect by helping them and giving input in a way that's going to be productive and moving forward. And so I got, I got that from this initial team, um, you know, and then we went out and sold it and it was crazy. That, that's so interesting. So everyone's experience, I think with their, with their agent publisher is, is different. So my only experience with agents up until I got an agent was what I saw in Hollywood. Uh, particularly in Californication with David Duchovny and his, you know, and I, that, it, I, that was a great show. I loved it. But uh, that's what my my only experience was. And it was so different for me when I actually got an agent. Um, but I, what I thought 
was going to happen was that they would give me a lot of input on the book and, Hey, you need to change this. You need to do this. I've been involved in this, this, this world for so long, this works, this doesn't zero. So, uh, so, which is great in many respects because now I don't have that, uh, the political relationship side where I'm like, uh, I, if she has an idea and I don't like it, how do I, you know, how do we work? No, there's never, she, her job is just the deal and that's it. And, um, and you maybe at some point I'll, I'll ask, but she, she stays in her, she crushes her lane. Um, that's right. And, and it's uh, funny because it's, it's different. Yeah, no, well, it's just it's different. Evolves differently. Like I have, I have an incredible team here. My agent's amazing. Like she's, she's unimprovable. Um, and, but I, you know, I really moved carefully and chose my editors carefully in the U S and the UK. I've been with my editors since 2009 now. I mean, I think we've done, this is our thir 13th book together we're wow. working on. And so like, you know, the teams evolve in different ways, you know? And so people, but initially when I was starting, I just happened to run into an agent who was like super editorially heavy. And as a kid who was younger, who needed that, you know, it was, it's really good that I ran into that versus someone who just tried to sell it. Maybe it doesn't sell, right. Unless I killed myself rewriting it. I mean, I doubled it in length practically. Mm. I mean, I turned it into a real book that could be submitted. Um, but you know, now I have, I have such a great team who I trust. It's so streamlined and, um, you know, that it helps a lot. Right. So it's, uh, it's interesting the pieces that you get, cause you want input, but you don't want too much input. And, Right. You need to, I, you, the advice I give people, as I say, you know, you want to have few people who you trust and let into that creative bubble. But if you let them in, you have to trust them and believe them. Right. Even if it means quite often, I don't agree with the note. I don't agree with the proposed like notion or solution, but it means that they're identifying some editorial anxiety. And some of this I learned from Hollywood. Like you'll sit down with an executive sometimes it's like, ah, the third act's slow. And I'll go home and be like, no, it's not. Like, the second act is slow. You just realized it when you got to the third act and wrote it down. My job isn't to be smart and argue the point. My job is to figure out something bugged you. If I trust you, right? That's the threshold. How do I excavate what that is to try to go down to? And sometimes I'm pulling scenes and fixing things that have nothing to do with what they said. And it comes back and it all works differently. And so there's a little bit of trying to figure out how to really stay open to criticism, but you want to make sure that you're, that the people giving it to you, you know, are legit, like that you're yeah. aligned creatively. Cause you don't want to be running in circles, chasing your tail. No, that's exactly, that's exactly it. And, uh, I have such an amazing editor, Emily Bessler, Simon and Schuster, Emily oh, Bessler she book. She's incredible. Um, but I, I thought there would be a lot more, uh, as far on the editorial side of the house. When I, when I first sold that, that, that initial one, I'm like, oh, now they're going to make it good. I'm like the, I'm with the professionals now it's with Emily because at the back of all these books that I was reading, uh, all the Vince Flynn books, the Brad Thor books, I kept seeing this name, Emily Bessler. They're thanking this person at Simon and Schuster and she has her own imprint called Emily Bessler books. Well, that's who I'm going to send it to. That's the, that's the person right there. And, uh, and, sh and she's so good. But, uh, I, what's shocked me is that they made this investment. Um, and of course they had the finished product first to look at as you have to do with, with fiction. Um, but, uh, but since then, there's been no, hey, what's the next story going to be about? Or what's the next title going to be? Or what's uh, where do you think this is headed? Zero, um, which is great because I have complete control over where the stories go and the characters and everything else, things I want to explore. It's not like, hey, we sit around and come up with this, hey, you know what's oh. next? Or, hey, you know what people are really liking these days is this. Like there's zero of it's that. It's wonderful. When you, yeah, it's a wonderful part of publishing. And it's so different from, you know, 
TV or film where there's, there's just so many people to make it, right? A script is an invitation to collaborate. With books, it's great. You know, it's like, if you, if you get to that point, of course, but it's like, should we do three more? Yeah, okay. See you in a year, right? Yep. It's, a, it's, it's incredible a, like, that they trusted me with that and that they continue to trust me. It's still semi-shocking. Um, like, you know, and, I'm and, sure you don't want to know anything about the next one. <laughs> you know, it's what I'm, I don't ask that. That's kind of what I'm thinking in my head. Um, and Emily Bessler, who you mentioned is just, she's fantastic. Top-notch, you know, editor of thrillers. And, and in fact, a young, a new young writer who you've helped some, um, Connor Sullivan mm-hmm. had a first book out with her and it was very similar. He was looking and, that's that's where you love to see it, where you're looking in the back of all the Vince Flynn and everybody, and he's looking in the back of Jack Carr. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's and, crazy how that how that works. You were, you yeah, were that you were one of those kind of guiding stars for him. And I remember when I he was so excited to meet you, and when uh, I put when I put him in touch with you, that so was a cool. big deal for him. Yeah, so, great book, Sleeping Bear. You know, it was out yeah. last year. Next one's coming out in uh, in a few months here. Um, but let's talk about Hollywood a little bit because you have, I mean, you've done so much. I mean, you've done these 23 novels, the seven Orphan X ones, which have crushed uh, comic books, screenplays for television and film. What That journey is very new to me. Um, luckily, my first novel got picked up by Chris Pratt, the exact person I wanted to get. it. got the exact director that I wanted to be interested in, Antoine Fuqua. So that that was crazy how all that came about. But then I get thrown into the the mix. And that mix is a showrunner. I didn't even know what a showrunner was um, up until they introduced me to him on a phone call in December of 20, when did we start writing this? December of 2019, uh, I think we started writing. Um, and then go into that full year of putting that writer's room together, me uh, advising on all the scripts, and then seeing how those scripts, once you get them and get on set, and then the actors then interpret these different characters of these lines in a way that isn't just for... 45 minutes, an hour and a half, two hours, but for eight hours, for eight episodes, by the time you get to that third, fourth, fifth, sixth, there've been so many changes as far as how these actors have interpreted their character that it changes the script and what you would envision. It's kind of like a plan in the military, uh, in the, in a room in an air conditioned office. Sounds great. Uh, and then you get out there, yeah. situation, Here's terrain, said, dictate. No, no plan, no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it's exactly like, so the scripts are now so different than they were when uh, when we approved them um, out of the gate. Uh, and it's so, been so interesting to be part of that process. And it is so collaborative. So so different than writing a novel, which is is me here sitting down, typing away, you there sitting down by yourself, typing away. Well, once you have, and then once you sell it to someone like Amazon, so Chris Pratt and Antoine and the showrunner, take it, take it to Netflix, take it to Amazon, take it to HBO, take it to Showtime, take it to Hulu, and Amazon is the winning bidder. Well, now you have another layer on top of people that want to give notes on every single script and it works its way up the chain of command and then it works its way down the chain of command. And it's interesting, the, just the, uh, the, the personal, you know, politics of how you want to respond to notes and some that are great and some that are not. Um, and then how you work all that out as a gigantic team, um, with a lot at stake, uh, it, it, as, as this process moves along. So that's been, that's been fascinating, but it's totally different than sitting down alone to write. I yeah, mean, you get, you get to have conversations and you get to talk, Hey, do you think this works? Or, Hey, why did we do this? That doesn't make any sense. Or as you go along now, it definitely doesn't make any sense because of the way that Taylor and Chris have played their parts. Now we have to move that. That doesn't work, uh, anymore. So it's been, it's been very, it's been incredible. Um, but for you, what was your first, uh, experience in Hollywood? How did you make that, 
that transition from wow. sold my first book, Simon & Schuster publishes it. I'm working on that next one. Uh, how do you work your way into, into screenplays and did comic books come first or what, what came first as you took that, as you evolved from that first novel? So what came first? I wrote some scripts that were my own, like on spec, right? And had some attachments in and out. But my first paid job that got me into the Writers Guild was I was like the 97th screenwriter hired by Jerry Bruckheimer to adapt Dick Marcinko's Rogue Warrior. No way. And so I met Dick, you know, Harry Humphreys, like the whole crew yeah. they were out. I knew a lot of the guys, like I mentioned, I knew Dick's preacher pretty well. Like, so I had some overlap with it. And it was so funny, man. I mean, we go, we go to lunch and Dick's there and he's, you know, he's got more personality than can be contained in one human body. Right. And it was a blast. So um, that's what I worked on. That was the first thing that got me into the guild. And my script was about a splinter group of Osama bin Laden unleashing a weapon, a biological weapon of mass destruction um, in DC. And I turned it in September 9th, 2001. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I say it was, it was the least, the least important casualty of 9-11. It was just like, I had this whole speech about, cause you know, Rogue Warrior is all about how ill-prepared we are, how soft we're getting, right? It's, it's all that stuff. I have it right over there signed. Yeah. 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 Out and of my so, shelf. Um, and look, I don't mean to imply it magically would have just gone forward and worked, but it certainly didn't. The development process just stopped. So that was my first, um, my first job that got me in the guild, you know, my first movie that I got sole credit on was called the book of Henry. Um, it Colin Trevorrow directed it after Jurassic, after he directed Jurassic world, it stars Naomi Watts. Um, she was amazing. She was my top choice for it. And I had a very interesting moment. That's a lot like what you're talking about. These actors who interpret everything. There's a scene with Naomi Watts and Sarah Silverman's in it where I had written that script. That was the first screenplay that I wrote. It took me 18 years to get that script made. I kept writing it and rewriting it and rewriting it over the years. Finally got it made. Um, and there was this one speech I had that mm -hmm. I'd spent, I, I can't even tell you how many times I'd written and rewritten it. And in the scene on the day, you know, you're, you're, you're there and Naomi Watts, who was, who was so um, spectacularly talented. Like when you see someone who's real, who's really an actor or actress, not a movie star, it's just, it's mind blowing. Like what you can get in different takes. Right. And she came out and it's this exchange with Sarah Silverman. And she just had this moment where this constellation of emotions moved across her face and you just saw everything. And in that moment, I knew we would no longer need that speech because she had said it all with just her expressiveness, like just with her facial expression. And the thing that's weird is when you've chosen the right team and things are going well, that's something that as a writer, you have to let go of and applaud, right? Because if I hadn't written that speech forever, she's not going to understand and get to the place to do it. But if she can do that purely visually in a visual medium, that's what you want to have happen. And so it was this really interesting moment that I had that's a lot like what you're talking about is if you have talent, the aim is, you know what? Hair and makeup will make it better. Location, they should make it better. The actors are going to make it better. It's like when you're writing a comic, you have to trust your artist if you have a great artist, right? They're going to know how to tell the visual storytelling, even if I've laid out a different template. And so you want everyone to feel in a collaboration like they have room to throw their elbows mm -hmm. because that's where a lot of the interesting stuff comes from. 
Um, and it's a very different muscle set and skill set working in television and film, you know, and even comics. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it was so great to see you know, what Chris brings to it, what uh, Taylor Kitsch brought to it, what Constance Wu brought to it, what Antoine brought to it as the director of the first episode and then as an executive producer overseeing all the other kind of directors and their edits uh, that came, that come in. Uh, even last night, last night was one of my last cuts for episode eight, the final episode. Mm -hmm. So we're getting there. You have that, uh, that director's cut, that network cut, that editor's cut, all these different cuts. Um, and I make my notes on each and every one at the timestamp and all that stuff. And just to see how it's evolved with everyone's input. Um, and when you talk about things going well, I think my experience over this last uh, couple of years, particularly when we started filming in, in March of, uh, of last year and finished this, uh, uh, this August, but, and then it goes into what is in post-production right now, but just seeing what everyone brought to the table and see everyone bring their A game, uh, from Chris and Antoine, uh, everybody else, the, the mobility people that are on set doing all the, That's all right. the cars, uh, the, my, my friends who are the technical advisors in there, uh, every actor, the makeup people, like everyone, the armorer, everyone is bringing their A game and they are so good at everything that they do. And that was a, a one part that, uh, my first time on set, it was like a military operation. Yeah. I was like, okay, in a military operation, what do you have to do? You got to feed the troops. So we have this army logistics train that's very good at feeding the troops. Well, we have craft food services. What do they do? They're feeding the troops. Yeah. Uh, in a platoon, Better we have the mobility guys. Too. <laughs> a little bit. And uh, the mobility guys, like in a platoon, that's what we have. We, they're making sure that all the gun trucks are gassed up and ready to go. Uh, and same thing on set. You have that person that's just doing that. The armorer, same thing. We have an armorer in the, in the SEAL team, in the SEAL platoon, that's in charge of all the weapons. We have the breacher in charge of all the explosives. Well, same thing on set. There's an explosives guy. So everybody was so good. And it really was like a military operation. And that's right. Like and a they're family. doing all the things you do as a novel. Like when you're writing a book, your hair and makeup, right? Your costume, your, your location, right? Your, you have to make the weather effects. Like, you know, but, so it's this interesting thing to this explosion when it all gets outsourced to people and you start to realize like, man, the, the palette of how these characters are dressed right? Like simple stuff you don't even think about, right? But of course we think about when we're writing, like, you know, if someone's wearing Oakley blades, that's a choice. That means something, right? Oh, yeah. And so it's like all these things that we think of, but to have someone that that's all that they do for every character, it's amazing. Yeah. So quick question for you, when you're giving your notes, is a lot of that kind of tactics, um, weaponry or are you just, is it purely on the creative front of what's working and not working for you? Like what's, what's the overlap? Yeah. It's mostly the, the creative side of the house. Although if I see something egregious on the weapons handling and I, then I mentioned it, yeah, something like that. Uh, and there, there've been a couple, but, uh, I was very lucky in that I had two of my dear friends on set all day, every day, um, watching and making sure. Oh, who that, did you, who that, did you have? Who are the guys who you had on or so, did, yeah, Jared Shaw is the guy who handed this the book to Chris, uh, Chris Pratt, and said, "Hey, here's here's your next project." And then uh -huh. Chris read okay. it, and then called me in uh, January of of twenty. Uh, 2018 before the book even came out to option it. So he gets a good, he gets a bottle of Johnny Walker blue. That guy. Oh, he, I thank him every day, uh, whether he knows it or not. And I try to let him know every time, uh, as often as I possibly can via text or phone call or when we see each other in person. Um, but he, and he got a role in it. 
he's an actor now and he right. did such a good job, like a legit actor, not just cool. a seal playing a seal, yeah, yeah. but a legit actor. And he crushed it. And he's a producer on, on it as well. And he put so much more into it than, um, let's say what his job called for. Um, and then Ray Mendoza is on the other side of the house, just mm -hmm. doing the technical advising. And he did, he was in, um, uh, active valor and he did the technical advising on lone survivor, uh, with Peter Berg. And he was there every day making sure that, uh, Hey, taking, Taylor Kitsch to the range and going through, hey, here's a shotgun. Here you go. Here's how you do your reload on a shotgun. Bring it back up. Do this. You run dry. Here you go. Transition to the pistol. Like doing all those things and get Taylor trained up for this one scene where he has to rock this shotgun. Um, and so he was there every day. But these guys, because we have this relationship, we they wanted to do a good job, um, you know, for because of our past experience together. Um, and, uh, and it was just so cool to see them put so much time, energy, and effort into this thing to make it, make it what it is. But on yeah, my I notes, can, I can't wait to see it. I'm really excited. Oh, for thank it. you. Thank you. Um, but yeah, the notes are a lot, a lot of it's creative uh, and it's because growing up, you know, I was, a, I was a reader first. I was, my mom was a librarian. So I'm reading all these books growing up and I'm also noticing how they're adapted. If something's adapted to television or to a film and I'm noticing, Hey, what worked for me? What didn't I'm applying Joseph Campbell and the, the power of myth and the hero's journey here with a thousand faces to all these things. So I was essentially giving myself an education in the art of storytelling, um, through different mediums, uh, the written word and visually. Um, so I'm bringing that background. I didn't just wake up one day and decide, Hey, I'm going to see if I can make some money at this writing thing. Uh, right. what should I have been reading for the last 40 years or what movies should I have been watching and how should I have been watching them? Um, I was giving myself an educate, a lifetime education yeah. for my whole entire life. Um, so that's what I'm kind of, that's the lens that I'm looking at, at this through, not, Hey, this is different than the book. Yeah. It's going to be different right. than the book because it's a, they're telling a story in a different, different way. And if and that's, it's not, that's it'll suck. Exactly. Exactly. That's like, a much about, more blunt way of putting it. But yeah, that's I mean, the exactly best adaptations, it. you know, you think about uh, Clockwork Orange or Apocalypse Now, right? A lot of times they're about Schmidt. Like if you read about Schmidt, the Lewis Begley book, and then mm. you saw the Alexander Payne movie, you wouldn't even necessarily know they're related. Like a lot of the books, a lot of films that take liberties, there's some great ones that are more on point with the book. Like I feel like the uh, Mystic River feels very much like it's a faithful adaptation and it just worked because of the the, the sort of uh, gritty kind of plainness of Eastwood's direction. Yeah. And by plainness, I mean that as a compliment, you know, it, it just, it mapped onto what Dennis had done, Dennis mm -hmm. Lahane had done so beautifully in that novel. I love that novel. I mean, I go back and just read it cover to cover every couple of years and so sometimes it can be close and it can be great, but a lot of times, you know, Godfather, right? A lot of times you want it opened up, right? Yep. Telling a story yes. in a different way. And I, and I saw that. Um, and actually one of the first calls that I had with the showrunner, I think he was a little nervous about bringing the writer in, in such a, yeah, yeah. Uh, in a role. They kind of wanted nervous. to. Yeah. And, uh, and I, we just had this great conversation and I talked about, Hey, you know, first blood, the novel written in 1972, never been out of print. Uh, and the movie first blood with Sylvester Stallone right. 10 years later, very different. Very That's different. Right. Uh, both fantastic. Um, so anyway, I give a few of those examples and he was like, okay, this isn't just some SEAL guy who wrote a book about SEALs. This is a student of the genre, a student of the craft, and uh, wants to make this as good as it can possibly be. And then, of course, Chris and Antoine, what they wanted to keep 
is that raw, gritty authenticity, that darkness. Right. That's what is important to them. Um, and then the rest of it, you know, the story will will work its way out and we'll continue to work on it right through to the end. But but keeping that, that visceral nature of the violence and uh, really connecting with the story with the uh, with people who have been downrange doing that job. Like that's what was so important to them and we've remained faithful to that. But if someone's going to watch any adaptation and want to find things that are different than the book, they're going to find them. <laughs> it's not going to be difficult. So if that's the way, and I never go into anything, right. you know, looking for a way to not like it. I go into things looking for a way to like it, whether I'm giving a blurb for someone on a, in a novel or going to sit down with my wife to watch a movie or whatever it is. I don't want to sit there and pick it apart for all the things that I, that I don't like about it. I want to enjoy it for what I do like about right. it. So, that's right. <laughs> but, uh, and you've had a lot of experience now in Hollywood. So, um, so you've been doing this for a while. Do you think it is beneficial to, uh, as an author and as a screenwriter to live in Los Angeles? Um, uh, or do you think you could have lived anywhere across the country and kind of had a similar experience? I wouldn't have initially, I think now, look, novels, you can live anywhere, as you mm -hmm. know, I think it was important for me to be here in, in the era that I kind of came up and broke in, in, there was a lot of meetings, right? There's a lot of like too many, but like everything is here, the production, the talent, the agencies. And I, I think it was important. I love Los Angeles. I mean, I'm from Northern Cal, but the, the, you know, I love, I love Southern California, everything except the Dodgers. I kept the giants, <laughs> um, which makes me unpopular in this town. Um, but you know, I think it was, I think it was, so I, I, I love it here. I would live here regardless, but I think it was important for me to be here, but now I could be wherever I yeah. think. And, you know, unless something's, you know, if we have to go on location, I could go on location and who knows where that'll be. Yeah. And I'm not going to be, you know, for a while I, I've been in writer's rooms, I've helped run writer's rooms. And that's obviously, you know, you're on a, you're on a studio lot and you're figuring that out and then flying up to production in Vancouver. Like I've, I've done some of those things just to get a lot of, um, um, for, you know, projects that are interesting with interesting people and also to get a lot of production experience, but that's not something that I'd be doing now. Again, I'm not going to be in a writer's room again. I'd, I'd be more, you know, just on the creating side or, yeah. you know, and it's varied. Like I had a movie come out a couple months ago from Netflix called sweet girl, you know, that shot in Pittsburgh. I wasn't involved in that at all in terms of on production. Right. I went, I was in Pittsburgh for a book tour and I stopped by the set to say hi, but it was, I, I wasn't involved all the way versus with the book of Henry. I was on, I was in New York. I was on set for two thirds of the production. So it's very different. Like they all have different modes. And as one of my friends, uh, Billy Ray, who fantastic screenwriter, who wrote Captain Phillips, among other things. Um, one of the things he said is he's like, look, it's a relay, right? So you, you run your part, you hand off the baton, you can follow the other guys around the track, you know? but it doesn't change the outcome necessarily. <laughs> it might just tire so, you out. Yeah. And so, but part of that is, you know, you need to know, I had a, I had a really good relationship with the director on um, actually both the book of Henry and sweet girl, both movies. Um, but one, it was more important for me to be there and be involved with it. And the other one kind of was set up and off it went. Um, and so, and they had their own kind of crew and team there and, and, and we're figuring it. So you, you kind of gauge it, what's necessary, what levels of involvement are necessary. And that's all kind of an art to figure out as it progresses. So sometimes people want a lot of involvement. They're calling a lot, you know, and mm. other times they want your part and then they want to take it and do their part. So 
Yeah. No, I think I, I, that if you're starting out somewhere, uh, in, in this, in the, in this business, in the entertainment industry, uh, screenwriting in particular, as an actor in particular, uh, that it does help to be in Los Angeles until you reach whatever level that is, um, where you don't have to be there yeah. anymore. Where there's you don't any, want to be. Yeah. Where there's incoming phone calls. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And but there's just so well. many, uh, uh, targets of opportunity that, uh, that I've seen come up just in my limited experience that it would help to actually be there for, to take advantage of. Well, and you um, can also, you know, I'm sure you pop out here from time to time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I, yeah, I was out, uh, four weeks. Yeah. Four times for a week each on set. And it was just a, such a great experience. So, so cool. Um, and, uh, what was really interesting is also realizing that what we see from the outside looking in, uh, when I say we, I mean the consumer of a movie of a TV show, um, is the star, maybe the director, maybe a producer with a huge, huge name, mm. but there are hundreds of other people that are quote unquote normal that are just doing their jobs and so good at it. And so many of them would come by and be like, Hey, would you sign this for my, uh, my, my son or my daughter, they're going to boot camp, And I always had a box of books with me or people would come up and they'd want to talk about, uh, land cruisers, motorcycles, knives, whatever. Um, and it was just, it was so cool to see all the people that actually make yeah. it it's happen. A, it's a micro economy. And man, if your crew is on point, it's the whole deal. Oh, you know, it's like, so you're lucky. right to say, everyone thinks about the star. Everyone thinks about the director. Like you get a good crew. You know, one of my friends, really funny, he's a, he's a director always says like, if any one of those guys, like if my focus polar smoke cracked the night before, nothing works. Yeah. Right? Like that's the that. one guy not doing their part, you know? Yep. And, and like having crew that's good, it's amazing. And, and like anyone who's smart knows, like you go in with, you know, everyone respect, like, you know, you've, I've, you know, the teamsters who are running the, running the trucks and the vehicles. Awesome. It's like, if everyone's pulling together and feels respected, it's great. Your crew can save you and your crew can kill you if they get, if there's not good leadership, it's like anything, it's like any operation, yep. like, uh, um, but it is amazing too, to know, like, you know, I would sit and talk to the sound guys sometimes, like the amount that people know in an arena, I don't know much about it all, right? Mm -hmm. With sound, for instance, sound engineering, like I have a sense of what makes sense and doesn't, and I can hear stuff and recommend stuff. But like the, the level of specialized expertise is just incredible with some of these guys and yep. women, you know? Oh yeah, no, it's cool. And that leadership side of the house, uh, a lot of people, well, obviously, a lot of people came up and talked about other projects they'd been involved in. And they all made a point to say this, there's something going on in this set and it's special and it's different mm -hmm. than the hundreds of other things I've been involved in. And for me looking at it, I would, I'd see Chris and Antoine at the top, essentially the top of this pyramid and their leadership at the top, the tone yep. that they set up there, uh, filtered down to everybody in such a positive way and encouraging way. Um, right. but I can see how it could be the opposite. If you had some sort of like That's a right. crazy director or crazy stars that are setting the, the uh, different kind of tone up there, how that can filter down to, um, I, I saw how that could happen. And, and interesting you You're say right. about how good people are at their jobs. Cause it's like a Lamborghini, meaning that there, everything has to be working. For that thing to be going well, as and fast you're as building it, can. it, you're building it around you while you're going 120 miles per hour <laughs> in production, you know. Uh -huh. But you're right, like the 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 culture and the tone is set by the director and the number one on the call sheet, you know. And so if you if you luck into, you know, it's like and and you know Chris Pratt, there's a reason he has such a good reputation. Like if you luck into someone who is like solid, like you can't then be the number four on the call sheet and be a prima donna. You just yeah. can't, right? If he's showing up and 
working hard and doing his job and being respectful. Right. So that it is important to do that and to show what's acceptable and what isn't. Yeah. So I got really, yeah. The whole crew was just, it was just fantastic. I can't say enough great things about it. What a great well. first experience for you. Yeah. I, mean, no, I, I feel, I feel very, very fortunate. I have a few other things in the works right now as well. So I'm curious that I'll be, I'll be able to uh, now have something to compare them to if, uh, if other right. things continue That's to go right. forward. But uh, where did the comic book thing come in as well? Like at some point, did you say, Hey, I want to do some comic books or is that something you always wanted to do? Or did someone come to you and say, Hey, you know what? You should think about doing a comic book. How did that uh, come about? Cause you've done, I mean, Wolverine, you've done uh, Punisher, uh, Dark Knight, Batman, like you've done a lot of comic books. Uh, how did yeah. that come about? So first I've always written about vigilantism. It's like, it's been a recurring theme. And so I grew up a comic book geek, right? I loved the Punisher was my end all be all. And at some point, um, I want to say it was Brad Meltzer who introduced me, but I was like, you know, across cause Brad's a friend and, you know, we'd done some events together. And, um, as a, as a adult or whatever passed for an adult at that age in my, you know, that I was, I was reading, you know, Garth Ennis's Punisher, incredible run on the title anyways. And so I, I, through some weird set of circumstances, I got in touch with, uh, Axel Alonzo, who is the editor in chief of Marvel. I want to say for 15 years, it might be 13. I don't remember. Brilliant editor, great guy. And Garth was just sort of, basically Axel called me and said, do you want to pick a character from the Marvel vaults and like reinvent him and launch him? Right. Wow. It was like this dream call, right? He was a fan of the books. He said he'd, he'd sort of show me. And then the craft stuff can be figured out, right? I needed to know formatting and all that. And I had, I had a, a lot to learn about what's a spread, what versus a splash and two pages and how do you coordinate and what's the right level of detail. But I really had a great opportunity. And then when Garth Ennis left, he had a seven-year run on The Punisher, which was, uh, it's unheard of, right? Like a long run would be two years. I did two years on Batman The Dark Knight. And when he left, I think Axel wanted someone from outside of comics to take over just because the stakes were so big. I don't think, like Garth Ennis is so identified with The Punisher now. Um, And so either it was like going to go well, or it was going to be like the end of me in comics, you know? And so it was, it was a great thing. Like comics kind of came into me. I, I wound up writing Punisher. It went well, um, you know, did some Wolverine, played around with Moon Knight, you know, had Spider-Man swing into a Moon Knight. I did had Daredevil swing into a, you know, like I got to write my, the people who I grew up loving. And then DC met with me comics and kind of offered me anything again, like a pretty, not anything from the slate, but it was a very open conversation. I was treated very well by both Marvel and DC, uh, incidentally, which was great. And so I said to them, um, do you know the killing joke, the Alan Moore uh, Joker origin story? So there's a famous origin story of the Joker. I'm getting like too nerdy. I'm starting to lose you. No, no. Uh, It's like spectacular. Alan Moore's amazing. And so I always thought that the penguin interested me the, the most out of all of Batman's Rhodes Gallery, because he's the only one who's sane, right? Joker's insane. Mm. Riddler's insane. Like you get on the list. And if you're the penguin, Batman's a bully, right? And so I thought, I want to write an origin story for him to be taken as seriously as like the Joker is in this world, not just the, like the comedic Joker from the 70s show and all that. And so they were like, really? Like we're offering you anything. What you want to do is a penguin limited miniseries. I mean, it was like, it was nuts. 
And I said, yeah, and God bless them. Dan DiDio let me do that. And they just, I got an amazing artist. I still remember it was when they were rebooting the new 52, which was a big reboot of the whole DC universe. And they did a poll of what readers were looking forward to the most of new books. And when they listed the Penguin, I got like 0.0013% of the vote. <laughs> and my favorite internet troll line ever is somebody wrote, I'm really glad Hurwitz's mom voted for him. Like it was like <sighs> nobody cared and was interested in this. And the book came out. The artist was spectacular, Simon Kudransky. And it got a great critical reception. And then the fans came and they loved it. And it became the sort of anchor for me into, you know, then they wanted me to, I never, I always resisted doing ongoing books because I just, I have novels. So I like to do limiteds, but they wanted me to do a Batman title. And I said, I'll only do it if it's Batman and David Finch, because David Finch was, is one of my favorite artists and David Finch was on the dark night and wanted a writer. Like it was this perfect wow. thing, but it is another thing that was interesting that it taught me, which was like, I, if I'd come in and been like, I want to do a Superman title that Superman doesn't really speak to me particularly. If you just go for the biggest thing that you think is commercial, I like, I had in my head this, notion of reinventing the penguin and for the tv show gotham the actor who played the penguin you know cited that as one of the things like it did what i wanted to do it became i think a, a one of the bedrock penguin stories and it's like if you do the thing that you love and do it well people will come to it versus trying to like reach for the thing that's bigger or more commercial and so that was great i spent two years writing Batman worked with incredible neil adams illustrated my last batman story like i mean just incredible experience and then I sort of realized I'd written everyone that I wanted to write. I mean, I got some offers to reinvent this character or that character. And I just felt like, look, Punisher Wolverine. I wrote a Hulk that I love that is kind of, it got stalled because the editor left and whatever else that maybe someday we'll see the light of day. But I wrote all the characters I wanted. And then basically I was kind of, you know, had fun playing in the world's most amazing sandboxes with the best toys and then I kind of moved on. And then Axel went and started a new comic book company um, called AWA. And he asked me to be on the creative council. And so I joined that with Garth Ennis, aforementioned Garth Ennis of, of you know, Punisher and many and the boys and many other things. And then I wrote my own creator own comic called Knighted. It actually came out, I want to say, yeah, two days ago. It just wow. came out the first one. Cause the thing that brought me back was if I can do my own creator-owned work now. And so when I'm doing comics now, it's it's stuff that is, you know, um, creator owned, and that's that's like a new lane that, that was interesting enough. But I loved my time in comics. Um, I loved working with the artists, especially, um, and it was cool. And so now I get to do it, but do it for you know my own my own crew. Yeah, that is cool to get to that stage where you can do something like that. You have those that that those opportunities available, and it, and not only that, but you've also dabbled a little bit into the young adult fiction side of the house with, I think, two oh, yeah. young adult titles. Um, right. What what uh, inspired you to do those? God, the inspiration. I mean, look, I love, I wanted to write these books about kids. I say, you know, it takes place in a square state, you know, nestled among others. I don't quite say where it is, but I mm -hmm. wanted to write an old fashioned book. Like I grew up loving Kidnapped and Treasure Island. I mm -hmm. mean, you remember all those, those old adventure stories. And I wanted to write a young adult story about kids who who do things like with their hands, who like raise dogs and work on ranches and farms. And like, I wanted to have, have a young adult sort of adventure sequence that was, that, that felt that way. My kids were of an age that even though they were reading some orphan acts, I wanted to write something that's in that wheelhouse. 
and get back to like a really classic kind of narrative about it's about a lot about like you know loyalty friendship honesty courage right like kind of like a classic core story and i always had a notion in my head i've always been fascinated by um like parasite uh like basically parasites in nature and how they work and i don't know if you know about um zombie ants but there's a spore that floats around and it lands on an ant and it infects its brain and it makes the ant crawl to the the highest stalk of uh or leaf of 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 grass to use the the Whitman term and climb up and it clamps its mandibles and inverts and then its abdomen swells and then it explodes and spreads more spores to infect more ants. And I just thought, what a cool notion for the invasion of something. We don't know what it is, but I thought like this meteor lands in a field of like, you know, cornfield in the middle of this square state. And basically that happens to people, but they go up on a water tower, right? Their belly swells and it explodes and it infects basically everyone over the age of 18 only. There's something that clicks over. And so it's basically all the kids against who have to try to figure out what to do before they fear becoming like their parents, right? But these are kids who do shit. These are kids who know how to fire shotguns and ride horses and, right? And so I just had this, this notion of this world and I just sat down and wrote it. Um, I wrote that and Orphan X both. I went back on, on, I wrote Orphan X on spec, even though I stayed with my same editor because I just wanted to make sure everybody was on board with this in a way that was, that was excited. And I wrote the reins. I wrote these two books on spec and then I sold both of them, you know, in, in two book deals and it was cool. That's awesome. That, and that's, Terrifying, by the way. Uh, and uh, so you, uh, there are very few people, I think, out there in this uh, industry who have done as many different types of things that you have, from writing 23 novels to having the success that you've had there to seeing the success that you've had in comics in with screenwriting, uh, with the young adult books. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. It's inspiring. Uh, and there are very few people like you out there. Um, and you've taken some of this now and you have given back teaching at USC, UCLA, Harvard. Um, when you go and you do a class at one of these universities, are you talking about Shakespeare? Are you talking about the, uh, creative writing process? What kind of classes are you teaching? And then outside of the kind of the technical side of things, um, what message do you want to leave those students with as they make their way out into the world? Mm. Well, so some of it, it varies. I've, I did a series of Shakespeare lectures, you know, for, um, for Harvard through, it was actually through Europe, which is funny. Um, it wasn't, um, Shakespeare never left England. So it was pretty funny because we we're doing these like locations. Here we are in Italy, like, let's talk about Shakespeare's world of Italy. And it's like, he was never there. So <laughs> it was all made up from shitty red, but it was fun. And it was, you know, that was great. I've taught some writing. I taught intro to fiction writing at USC. Um, and then, you know, weirdly, like I wrote a book that takes place in mind control cults and I went undercover into mind control cults. And I, so I, I, I gave a lecture a few years in a row in social psychology at UCLA. It's just kind of like anything that's, that's interesting and captivating. Um, but when I'm engaging with writers and young writers, you know, it's like the most important rule is for me is I never want them to write like me, right? Like the aim is to get them to write like the best version of themselves. And that's such a tricky line, right? Because you see, I mean, I think what's really cool is you're talking about like why Bessler is one of the best is she doesn't want you to be um, Vince Flynn. Like she wants you to be the best version of Jack Carr, right? That's part of why you're given that room and that freedom. Um, 
And so it's really important when teaching to be, to give that like direct, honest feedback, right? Show people respect enough to be honest, right? Try and figure out being better about gauging where they are in their capacity to be able to take criticism, constructive, constructive criticism, but also to really know that like, there's things that everybody sees and feels that, that only they know and can do. It's interesting. So with Orphan X, you know, when he's the nowhere man, basically, you know, government assassin, you know, trained up in a black ops program, pulled out of a foster home. And now he um, acts as the nowhere man, right? He acts as a basically a pro bono assassin. People who are in desperate, desperate straits can call him when they have nowhere else to turn on this, you know, 1855 encrypted number and he'll show up and help them. And you can, as a fan, you can call that number as well. Yeah, that's right. And there, there's someone on the other end, one so eight five five two nowhere So great. But one of the things that Evan does at the end of that, when he's completed a mission, the only payment he asks for is that that person goes and finds somebody else in as terrible and desperate shape as they were and pass that phone number on to him. And that's sort of, it's part of how he turns them from like a victim to a savior themselves, mm-hmm. right? It's part of an empowerment thing. But the other thing is that he tells them is only you, they're like, why don't you do it? He's like, because I live in the world the way I live in the world. I'd, I'd look and see the same people. Like you're going to see things differently coming from where you come from. And interestingly, that piece I think is really true for writers, which is like, don't try and write, you know, like no one wants you to write like, like Vince Flynn, right? No one wants Connor Sullivan to write like Jack Carr, right? It's, you should be inspired. You should you should read the people that that become something that guide you forward. But you want to hold on to to your own experiences, right? Your own vulnerabilities, your own fears. Like you have to tap into all those things. And the more that that people do that, that's when we talk about voice. That's when we talk about someone who has something really unique to say. Because you know, it's not like the, what are the conventional fears? What are the conventional stories? Right? Who are the conventional villains? It's like we all know what those are. We've all read 5,000 books, right? What's the thing in you that you experience in a situation um, that you can write about that's so personal that it cracks through and becomes universal, right? So it's, there's an interesting way to burrow through to that. And I think that's an important thing to encourage young writers about. That's it. That's that, that's that heart piece that we talked about earlier. And uh, Dark Horse, amazing. Once again, seventh novel in the Orphan X series, uh, 23 novels out there, all the things you have going on. So when you finish this up uh, and you're moving on like right now, what are you working on right now? Are you thinking about that next Orphan X or you have another project that you're doing? Are you doing multiple projects at one time or do you compartmentalize and be like, all right, for the next three months, comic or screenplay? Or is it, hey, I'm working on the screenplay from nine in the morning till one, and then I'm going to tail the lunch. I'm going to switch gears and hop back into Orphan X. How do you uh, organize your your day like that and your projects more uh, specifically? Well, I like to go, I don't have the luxury doing this anymore, but I love to go head down Mm -hmm. and just blast, right? So get to like, if I get through a first act of a book, let's say, if I, especially with rough draft writing, I like to get, like, if I'm doing comics, often I'll write like all six comics in a row in like a week and a half or two weeks wow. rather than one a month. Right. But now and then stuff comes in. Like I have some rewrites due on a screenplay. I sold a screenplay with my same writing partner from Sweet Girl. His name's Philip Eisner and it's called Sabine. Right. And we have like a, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with that. I have a last mm-hmm. set of notes now for the studio. Um, I've cracked into, you know, the next book I'm editing already. I already know the one after that, what that's going to be, right? I'm launching the comic book series. And so it's enough things that it's it's about juggling. I also do a good amount of work, you know, against, 
you know, anti-polarization work and culture and politics. And that's taken up a, a, a good amount of time and bandwidth, but having like really interesting conversations from people that who range all, all sorts of different views across the full political spectrum and trying to figure out where to find common ground and wrestle things back. And so it's, it's complicated schedule wise. I keep thinking there's a book that's wonderful um, by um, oh, Cavalier and Clay. I'm blanking on his name. Um, Michael. Um, Cavalier and Clay is the name of the book. Yeah, you know, hang on. I'm gonna I have to look this up now. Look it up. Look it up because I'm gonna go order it if I haven't read it. Uh, because I'm in this juggling mode well, as Michael well. Michael Ch- of course, Michael Chabon. Michael Chabon. He's one fantastic writer, but he wrote a book called Manhood for Amateurs. That's just great, great title. It's a collection of essays. <laughs> it's not on the fiction side. His fiction's fantastic too. And he talks about, you know, he's married to a writer, also I yell at Waldman, and they have a bunch of kids. I think they have like five kids. And in it, he talks about he wrote um Cavalier and Clay. I mean, he's written a bunch of books, Wonder Boys, like there's stuff that you'd you'd be familiar with. But he talks about when he had these kids, he kept thinking about getting back to this like mythical writing schedule that he once had. He's like, I just have to get back to that schedule. And then at some point he realized he's like, I never am going to have that schedule again, right? Like what a bizarre notion to think. And it's, it's funny because in some ways in my head, I still have that of like that first schedule we talked about, me and you, when I said I sold my first book, I wrote from nine to five every day, right? I took a half hour for lunch. I usually went to the gym at like, call it at four. And I was done with my day at five. It's just not going to happen again. Right. But in my head, <laughs> Dang it. it's, there's just, and that's good. There's yeah, a lot yeah. of things, you know, it's like, I, this is great. You and I get to have this talk now in the middle of a day, right. Mm-hmm. I have a book coming out. Like, this is cool. I want to be doing this stuff too, but it's important to try and find that toggle between things that are still exciting and things that feed the creativity and that hardcore discipline of carving out that like ass in the chair time, right. To just get it done. Yeah. And so, you know, I like to, to, I'd like to have more time cleared, more routinized, but there's a lot of stuff that's incoming. And now and then I'll go crazy and throw my phones out of the room. And Oh yeah. Phone like, leaves. Yeah. If I'm writing it's the phone is in the other, yeah. other has to be in the other, other room. Cancel all my shit. Like if I have to talk to anyone, I push everything to the afternoon, like now mm-hmm. and then I'm in those phases, but at other times I can't be, there's too much that's happening. So I try and fit it in, but yeah, I got, you know, I'm working on the next book, the next, next book. I'm working on the comic. I'm working on a rewrite for the script. I'm working on a bunch of stuff in right now in, in kind of culture slash politics, um, you know, and another couple of projects circling. So awesome. Yeah. Oh, love it. Love it. It's so cool to see someone who can juggle all of that, all of those different things and, uh, and do all of them so well. Uh, so, so thank you. Yeah, no, so cool. Uh, and anyone who's not jumped in on the orphan X series, uh, for sure do that and, uh, and check out all the other things that you have going on because there's so much out there that you have done and continue to do. And you're an inspiration to, to me and, uh, and authors, I'm sure all over, not just the country, but the world. So, uh, thank you so much for, for sharing this gift with all of us. Well, thank you, Jack. It's good, good talking with you, man. And I'm looking forward to the new one. Make 2022 the year that you take control of your finances right here. This is my original Navy federal credit union card. Look at that right there. I've been a member since 1996. So go to navyfederal.org, check out everything that they have going on over there and make 2022 the year that you take control of your finances. I know I'm not the only one looking for healthy snacks for me and my family, especially after a very busy 
2021 as we move into 2022. And if you've been following me, you know I'm looking forward to figuring out a schedule where I'm getting a little more sleep, where I'm getting some exercise, and where I am eating right. And that is where Paleo Valley comes in. Check them out, paleovalley.com. And you can use Danger Close 15 at checkout for 15% off your order. Now, this stuff is awesome. Paleo Valley, uh, how do I know it's awesome? Because I just crushed a few of these beef sticks and these things are awesome. There's all sorts of different flavors, jalapeno, original, teriyaki, summer sausage, garlic summer sausage, and they are awesome. So Paleo Valley, thank you so much for sending these out to me. Uh, And for those that are wondering, these beef sticks are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. Many on the market claim to be grass-fed, but actually are finished on grains. And they use beef sourced from small domestic farms in the U.S. This is a family-owned company, very small family-owned company. So they're making sure they do it right, that they are not cutting corners. They're prioritizing health over profit and uh, just an awesome group of people. What else do they send me here? I have these superfood bars here with grass-fed bone broth proteins, and there's all sorts of flavors here too. Pumpkin spice. How did you guys know? Awesome. Dark chocolate chip. (laughs) I'm going to crush those. Lemon meringue and apple cinnamon. Uh, All sorts of supplements out there, so be sure to go check out Paleo Valley. Dot com enter clo- code danger close 15 for that 15% off your order once again it's 100% grass fed beef with higher levels of omega 3 fatty acids vitamins and minerals and bioavailable protein so thank you so much i am fired up to get move into 2022 here and uh, this will be a part of my journey and look at this one right here uh organic super greens oh yeah I am all over that. So check them out, paleovalley.com, dangerclose15 at checkout for 15% off that order. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. So this is pretty cool. I'm hopefully it's going to fit in the screen here. And this is from Blue Ribbon Hardwoods. Uh, you can go to Blue Ribbon Hardwoods on Instagram. You can link to their site. You can contact them through there. But they made this. Can you see that? Ooh, yeah. Look at that. Yep. So this was a gift from Clinton Heidi Smith at Thunder Ranch. If you haven't been to Thunder Ranch, highly recommend you get out there to train as soon as you possibly can. But uh, they had Blue Ribbon Hardwoods make this for my retirement ceremony uh, from the military. And what's that? 45s. Oh, yeah. So awesome. The stars are 45 brass. Uh, This is awesome. It's on my wall back there behind me uh, in my office where I'm writing and doing the podcast. So very cool. So Blue Ribbon Hardwoods, check them out. Thank you guys so much. And then they sent me something else here recently. They sent me this. Look at that. Bam. The cross tomahawks. So Andrew at Blue Ribbon Hardwoods, thank you so much for sending this. It means so much. Um, just too cool. And the work is amazing. So thank you. Thank you so much. And then this, Gavin McKenna, Gavin McKenna, Gavin McKenna 92 on Instagram. Um, He noticed that I didn't have a certain buck knife. Now I've had different buck knives over uh, the course of my, my life, but I never had this classic. And he noticed that and he sent this to me. Everybody should have this classic buck uh, in their collection. So very cool. And thank you so much for noticing that and for sending this to me. I wanted one since I was a little kid. Um, and now I have one. Thank you to Gavin 
for making that happen. So very cool. And uh, yeah, thank you to everybody who, uh, who reaches out on the social channels. I really use the social channels as a way to say thank you for, uh, for your support, for getting the books, reading them, liking them, telling a friend about them. So uh, that's kind of how I use the social channels and I sincerely appreciate everything. So thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast. For more on Greg Horowitz, go to Greg Horowitz and there's two G's in Greg.net. Check out everything he has going on there. Check out the Orphan X series. Check out the comics. Check out a bunch of articles that he has written there uh, as well. So ton of information. Definitely check that out. And you can follow me, officialjackcar.com. You can link to everything from there. You can go to jackcarusa.com for the merch and at jackcarusa on the social channels. If you liked our conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review. It helps so much with those big tech algorithms. And you can order my next novel, In the Blood. Just go to the website and you can link to a bunch of different places to get it there. So thank you so much for tuning in. Sincerely appreciated. And until the next time, take care, stay safe, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy and, or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.